0: To cry, holy, 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 is simply to say, God, there is none like you. There is none like you. There is none like you. There is no one so faithful as you. There is no one so merciful as you. There is no one so just as you. There is no one so loving as you. There is just no one like you. So we sing, and I hope that never gets old for us. I mean, we're finite creatures, we're limited in our breath, right? Holy, 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 holy. Heaven never gets, it never gets done with it. They just keep singing it, keep singing it, keep singing it, because it's true. They don't feel compelled to do it, they don't feel burdened uh, to do it, right? They do it because of the one who they see, who they know. They can't but say, holy, holy, holy. I want you to turn to uh, 1 Kings 18. Um, <laughs> uh, as I, we were supposed to start a new sermon series, right? And and so uh, over the last couple of weeks, obviously last week uh, we were canceled with the snow and all, um, but the Lord just wouldn't let me get away from 1 Kings 18. We've been there for a few weeks. I'm assuming this will be the last week. You know, I. I I'm not making any of those kind of promises anymore. Uh, 1 Kings 18. uh, A few more observations that I thought the Lord was just like, no, you cannot move on. Here's what I want to show you. And then we get into a setting like this. And all these different themes are coming together to simply reaffirm what I felt like the Lord had placed upon my heart from 1 Kings 18. Just a few more observations. Do you know this? That God loves to work at a disadvantage. Do you know that he loves to work at a disadvantage? And if that is true for God, that's really good news for us. Why? Well, because any lack We may feel any burden that may be pressing upon us, any impossibility that we may be facing becomes a possibility to him. Do you see it? Our our impossibilities are but the canvas on which he prefers to work. He prefers the disadvantage to apply the broad strokes of his grace in rich and vivid colors to our lives. God loves to work at a disadvantage. He's drawn to need. He's drawn to vulnerability. He's drawn to the impossible like a potter. Right? Who's, who's taking the clumps of our impossibilities and he loves to work them, even carefully applying pressure to our impossible lives and then firing it in his furnace to conform us more and more to the image of Jesus Christ. While we may be facing impossibilities, God loves to work from The place of the impossible from the place of disadvantage isn't that good news for us, for what we've come through in this past week. Now, to that point, um, God loves to work at a disadvantage. The question that I want to just raise is why? And of course, there's the scripture would give us a lot of reasons for God why he would want to work at a place of disadvantage. But the text provides us at least two nuances kind of into seeing just why God would desire to work at a disadvantage. The first reason is this. God works at a disadvantage to prove his presence. God works at a disadvantage to prove his presence. Notice this in uh, 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 30 through 35. It's Elijah, he repairs the altar of the Lord, and then in verse 32, we've gone through the story, so I'm assuming you kind of know where things are at at this place between Elijah, King Ahab, and Jezebel, and now Elijah coming and doing this kind of... uh, uh, I don 't know a playoff between the the prophets of Baal um, as they erect altars and call down for fire to come to prove just who is the Lord Elijah. He repairs the altar of the Lord then verse thirty two and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seas of seed there's a bunch of debate on how big that is. it goes from a handful of feet to Ten, was it? Ten feet wide? This this could be a huge trench that has just been dug up, verse 33. And he put the wood in order, cut the bowl in pieces, laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water. Now, we're not talking like mason jars, right? We're talking about these big cauldrons where they would store water. Take four of those and pour it on the burnt offering on the wood, verse 34 and he said, do it a second time, and they did it a second time, and he said, uh, do it a third time, All right, okay, they do it a third time, and the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. Now, the question stands, why not just let the fire of God's presence fall? Is that not enough? Just to have an altar and fire come from heaven, why disadvantage yourself? Why put not just one round of water, but three rounds of water on to the altar? Why place yourself at a disadvantage, God, in order to clearly prove his presence? To clearly prove this isn't Baal. To clearly prove, this isn't coincidence. To clearly prove, this is not just some magical illusion taking place in front of your eyes, you western skeptic you, right? This is God. God puts himself at a clear disadvantage to prove his presence. Get your your head into that reality. Because this situation here is not exceptional. This is the normal experience throughout the storyline of Scripture. It's the way God normally works. He works at a disadvantage. Remember Abraham? Who was Abraham? He was a pagan sun worshiper. God says, I'm going to take this pagan sun worshiper and I'm going to place all my redemptive purposes and promises upon him. And part of those promises is, oh man, he's going to be the beginning of a whole nation. Only problem, he's too old to have kids. There's Sarah, She's she ain't having kids. God begins his redemptive work, so to speak, with the impossible. A pagan worshiper who's too old to have children, but that's what he promises. Or fast forward a little bit to... Moses. Moses is a vagabond murderer hiding on the backside of the desert. God chooses Moses to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt and not to do so with just Egyptian diplomacy. We all know Moses, you know, grew up in Egypt. But the method that he's to use is not just kind of Egyptian diplomacy. No, this is going to be a battle of signs and wonders. <laughs> Think about that. God's choosing you to go rescue some people by way of signs and wonders. Or fast forward a little bit more. You remember good old Gideon. Go fight those Midianites who are terrorizing God's people. Whose number is like the stars in the sky. Oh, and by the way, only take 300 soldiers and uh, fit them, not with armor, not with swords, not with spears, but with clay pots and torches. Oh, and take a trumpet. <laughs> it's the impossible. Or fast forward a little more. Good old David and Goliath. God's like, I'm going to use a single young boy, to conquer not just a giant, but really defeat a whole army. But then notice also, God is not only one who prefers to work at a disadvantage, but submits himself in Jesus to disadvantage. Jesus comes, how? Well, in our limitations, he's born to a couple unwed teens. The Lord of glory, remember, born in a stable. And he's born in a stable to these two unwed teens, right? With the ultimate strategy to die. You're going to go save the world. You're going to be the promised Messiah. Oh, how are you going to do that? Well, through death. That doesn't, I don't know about you, that doesn't seem to be a winning strategy. But it's such that God's presence his power his glory would ultimately be proven. Oh, and we got to keep going through scripture. Don't forget what's happening on this side of the cross. He has chosen you and me to carry out his purposes on earth until he returns. Talk about God putting himself at a disadvantage. You and me. Right? Literally, as scripture would say, we have been deputized in Christ to see the purposes of God realized more and more and more in this world. Now, as I thought through that, I I sat back and I'm like, I feel like more of the the Barney Fife kind of deputized than the RoboCop, you know, coming in guns blazing. I feel my limitations. I feel Barney Fife. Like, what wisdom do I have? I can only bring my foolishness and folly to the table. And God says, I'll use that. That's what I want to use to see my purposes move forward. Remember, folks, as Paul would say from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is things, the impossible things, to be the very canvas of his grace, to be the potter's chosen vessel by which his presence is proven. God has done this. God, let's just go back to God opened the womb of Sarah, (laughs) right? God split the Red Sea for Moses and his people. God crushed the Midianites. God ultimately slew the giant. God brought fire to Mount Carmel. And yes, God defeated my sin through the death of Christ. God has done, remember what Romans 8 said, God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. <laughs> we were dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. We were without hope, without God in this world, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. Our hearts, as it were, were the broken down Altars drenched in the waters of sin and death. We were the impossible, but God loves to work at a disadvantage. Do you remember, Christian, when God rent the heavens of your heart and descended upon your dead soul with the fire of His presence, where He licked up every last legal implication of your sin and caused you to be born again unto a living hope. He loves to work at a disadvantage. And even as we've said already this morning, Romans chapter 8, verse 39, if he did not spare his own son, how will he not with Christ freely give us all things? Once again, even as was said during our time of singing and and whatnot, this past week, last few weeks, have been hard for many. They've been hard for many, circumstances piling up against you. Maybe it's not just the last few weeks, but it's the season of life. As as one uh, actually said, uh, I feel like my life has become like I'm turning the page to the next chapter, and it's just... Empty pages. I have no idea of what's next. That's a vulnerable place to be. I don't know what to expect next. God loves to work at a disadvantage. Right? He loves to work from kind of that empty canvas of impossibility. And if God has not spared his own son to save you, how will he not now intervene? How ne- will he not now come into your impossibility to work out his faithfulness in your story and in your life? Again, this story, First Kings 18, is not exceptional. It's just normal. It's just the normal way God works. Isaiah chapter 43. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. He is the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. And check it out. He gives power to the faint. to him who has no might, he increases strength. This is who our God is. This is not just, oh, this is what he does once in a while. This is like DNA, divine DNA. This is his character. This is who he is. For him not to be this is for him not to be God. His godness is this. He is the everlasting God, creator of the ends of the earth. And, oh, if you've forgotten who your God is, He's drawn into the disadvantage. He's drawn into the impossibility. He comes to those who are faint, and it's by nature that he gives his power to them, and he strengthens the faint-hearted. Our God loves to work at a disadvantage to prove his presence so that in times like this, we can sing songs, and we say, you know, this past week, and maybe it's been the season. It's been hard, but... Think about it. He's been faithful again. He's shown up in my disadvantage again. He's proven his presence once again. There's no question. It's not bail. It's not some you know magical illusion. It's not coincidence. No. God is being faithful in my impossibility. He loves to work at a disadvantage to prove his presence. But second. God works at a disadvantage to turn hearts to himself. That's verse 36 through 37. Look at, look at verse 37 in particular. Elijah is praying. He, you know, it's, it's come to the point now, it's probably closer to evening time because the prophets of Baal have been cutting themselves all day and screaming out to Baal and Baal has not answered. And now the altar has been set. God has placed himself at a disadvantage. In verse 37, Elijah prays, answer me, O God, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. God loves to work at a disadvantage to turn hearts to himself. That's what Elijah's praying, that, you, that they would know that you've done this, you have turned their hearts back. Oh, and then the fire of Yahweh fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces. Let that ring in your mind. They fell on their faces and said, The Lord Yahweh, He is God. The Lord Yahweh he is God. I want to back ourselves into this point to explain it a little bit. God works at a disadvantage to turn hearts to himself. In previous weeks, we've noted that the church, it's you and me, right? That's us. We've gathered together. The church, all Barney Fife as we may feel, right? You and me, we carry something of an Elijah anointing. That may be weird language, I know, for for some of us. Elijah was empowered by God's Spirit to confront kings and cultures and to call people to repentance, that is, to see their hearts turned back to God, right? And it's this ministry of Elijah that foreshadowed John the Baptist's ministry. It's also this ministry of Elijah that foreshadowed Jesus' own ministry. But it's also this ministry of Elijah that foreshadows our ministry. (laughs) This is what the church is supposed to be be like Elijah. Now, remember, just to kind of fill that idea out, to show you how it's connected in Scripture, Elijah um, is mentioned in Malachi. Malachi would prophesy to God's people about 400 years after Elijah, 400 years probably before Jesus. And in chapter 4, verse 5, it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord and he will turn, here we go, he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. It's a turning of hearts that will take place. But then in Matthew chapter 17, as you fast forward in time through the Bible storyline, Jesus will explain to his disciples, well, Elijah has already come. And how has he come? Well, he's come in John the Baptist. What did John the Baptist do? Well, John the Baptist, he pointed God's people back to God. Repent was his ministry. Repent, turn back to God. And as hearts were turned back to God, so then fathers' hearts were turned to their children and their children to their fathers. It was a reconciliation to God and thus to one another. Jesus said, oh, yeah, Elijah has come in John the Baptist. But Jesus will also say in that particular text, that was from a few weeks ago, um, that, that text where he says, oh, by the way, another Elijah is going to come and he is going to restore all things. Who restores all things? Jesus. All right, so you get what Jesus is saying. El- the Elijah ministry has come in John the Baptist. It's going to come again when Jesus comes again to restore all things, but there's another text that we have to check out, and that is from Revelation 11. We went through Revelation not too long ago, right, and what we find in Revelation 11 is these figures that show up on the scene, very much like Moses and Elijah, doing the same kind of ministry, and this individual, this witness, is referred to as a lampstand, Do you remember what the book of Revelation refers to as the lampstand? What is the lampstand? It is the Church. church, right? Revelation chapter 1, I believe verse 20 specifically states that. The church is, or takes on, if you will, the ministry of Elijah. Elijah has come in John the Baptist. It will come again in Christ, but it is here and now Through the church. We carry, again, the Elijah anointing. We are lampstands as pictured in Zechariah chapter 4. We are a lampstand tapped into the olive tree. That's where the picture comes from. Olive trees produce what? Oil. Oil is a symbol for who? The Holy Spirit, right? The lampstand is tapped in. These golden lines tapped in to these olive trees, tapped in and into the lampstand so that there is a constant supply of oil and fuel to our lampstand. When Jesus said in John chapter 16, it's to your advantage that I go away, for if I do go away, the Holy Spirit, the helper will come to you. You're gonna get tapped in to the source, right? This never-ending supply of oil so that as a lampstand you might shine. That you might actually fulfill the Elijah ministry that has been granted to the church. Jesus is saying, it's to your advantage that I go. So that the church could be tapped into that constant flow and the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. So that we would be a lampstand constantly set ablaze in this dark world. To, just like Elijah, confront kings and cultures and to call people to repentance, to turn back to God. So the Spirit of God has moved upon Elijah, has moved upon John the Baptist, has moved, and will do so again, move upon Jesus. But here and now, he moves upon us. Let me say it then this way. God is not so much interested in using you for his purposes as he is intending to work through you for his purposes. Catch the distinction. He's not interested in using you for his purposes. He's intending to work through you for his purposes. A lost and dying world isn't in need of your great wisdom Your great ideas, your great strategies. A lost and dying world is in need of catching a glimpse of the glory of God through you. To see something of holiness, the love of Christ in you, to encounter the manifest presence of God through you. You are nothing but a lampstand. (laughs) You don't shine by yourself, you don't have light. Apart from him. You don't have fuel apart from him. Uh, Once again, you and I are nothing but Barney Fights apart from him. God has certainly put himself at a disadvantage. (laughs) Once again, also that his presence might be seen through you. What do people see in you? They just see you. Now this is the testimony of the early church, That is that it was all about God's presence being revealed through His people, just as His presence in 1 Kings 18 is being revealed through the ministry of Elijah. It's the testimony of the early church. For instance, Acts chapter 4 verse 13, when the spirit moves upon Peter and John to heal a man at the temple. The religious are frustrated. And they interrogate Peter and John. By the way, the religious do not like when the power and presence of God is made manifest. It is uncomfortable to them. They don't want it. It puts them in a place of not being in control. It offends their comforts. And so in this case, it was true once again. The religious are frustrated with Peter and John. How, what are they doing? They're, they're stirring up a bunch of chaos, it seems. And so Peter and John are questioned about the power they wield. And so in boldness, they respond by sharing the gospel with these Pharisees. And it states in verse 13, of Acts chapter 4, When these religious folks saw the boldness of Peter and John and found out that, notice, they were uneducated and untrained men, they were astonished and took note of the fact that these men had been with Jesus. It's to say, whatever these men did, whatever power was made manifest, that this man was healed, it certainly wasn't these uneducated, untrained men. But they begin, even in their religion, they begin to make the con- but they've been hanging out with Jesus. So we best be careful with how we handle this. Even an unbeliever, can begin to see God is working with the Barney Fights to display his glory so that, oh, it's not so much about the instrument, it's not so much about the lampstand as it is about the manifest glory through that instrument. What do people see in your life? Again, this is the testimony of the early church. God puts himself at a disadvantage recruiting the uneducated blue-collar fishermen, right? But it all the more points to Jesus. Or, or, Or flip the story a little bit. What about the Apostle Paul? The Apostle Paul, he is an educated man. He is a trained man. He knows his stuff. He was trained by the best of the best, tutors, mentors, teachers, scholars of the day. He got the best of it. So how does he respond to this new way in the Spirit? How does he respond to God wanting to use his weakness that that God's grace might shine through him? Well, this is how Paul states it, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2. For I decided, as he speaks to the church in Corinth, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but... In demonstration of the spirit and of power. That your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So even Paul, who had the training, he's like, man, he, he, he's not a Barney Fife, man. He is fit to be a an instrument through which God would work. And you know what Paul does? He says, all the the stuff that makes me think I'm something special to be in God's hand, I abolish it. I put it to the side. He says in Philippians chapter 3, I'm not going to use the expletive, but it's like an expletive. "I I consider all my resume to be but crap. That's as good as it is. God doesn't want to use how great of a person I think I am. He wants to use my weakness so that, once again, God is working at a disadvantage through the Barney Fife in me so that the faith of others, as their hearts are being turned to God through our ministry, aren't trusting in, oh, Dan's wisdom, Dan's preaching ability, Dan's counsel, but in the power of God. Paul had all kinds of reasons to lean on his own aptitude. But he would not. All so that faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. He wanted God. He recognized the value of God working at the disadvantage, at the place of my weakness. Now, maybe you sit back and you say, well, you know, that testimony of the early church, you know, that was just the apostles. That's that's not us. They had a unique thing going. And they did. They had a unique thing going. I'll, I'll grant you that. But let's continue to see what the church is supposed to be in carrying out this Elijah ministry. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. You see, you can't read the story here of Mount Carmel, 1 Kings 18, right? and the fire of God that fell, the presence of God that fell, in verse 39 of 1 Kings 18, and and then read, and when they saw the presence of God fall, when the fire came, they saw it and fell on their faces and declared, the Lord is God. You can't read that phrase and, and not hear it kind of echo through the corridors of Scripture. And find a landing place in 1 Corinthians 14. Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Paul will refer to spiritual gifts, chapter 12, verse 7, as the manifestations of the Spirit. Earnestly desire the manifestations of the Spirit. Earnestly desire to be a vessel through which God's presence is proven through your life. Pursue love. Earnestly desire those spiritual gifts, especially that you might prophesy. Towards the end of the chapter, then verse 24. And and if in the church all prophesy and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so, hear it. Falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Just as they fell on their faces in First Kings eighteen at the power and presence of God, so now in the church today, Paul is saying. This kind of stuff should be happening. God seen through you. Yes, as Barney Fife as you might be. God seen through you, and the result being that hearts are turning to the Lord. They are falling on their faces and they're declaring, yes, the Lord is God. Folks, this is not in the notes. Any culture that we live so similar to that of the Baal and Astra worship of 1 Kings 18. Remember, we talked about that it is a sexually insane culture. The Baal and Astra worship here, that's what it was all about. Sexual insanity. Today, we don't actually have the idols themselves to know what the heck is going on, but it is sexual insanity. Let's let's take the whole family unit, let's take how God has created marriage and just rip it apart. Let's confuse our children at a very young age so they don't know whether they're male or female and and, and what sexual preference you want as a young child. It's bad. It is twisted, it is backward. God designed you specifically the way he designed you. Just read Psalm 139. He didn't make a mistake. It don't matter what you feel in your head about what kind of thing you prefer. It doesn't. God designed you a particular way. You say, but I've been feeling this way since I was like born like a little child. I've always been feeling this way. How could God say, no, you can't do that." Don't, don't miss it. we are born sinners. <laughs> it's a part of our fabric. That's why even those who are born attracted to the opposite sex still want to make it something other than the pure thing that God has made it. We're sinners. We're we're all sexually broken from the cradle. We're broken. And in this culture, do we not need the Elijah ministry, the power of the Holy Spirit to work through the church so that the presence of God is proven and hearts are turned from this insane, sexualized, idolatrous culture back to God. He wants to use us. You feel fit? You shouldn't. <laughs> you really shouldn't feel fit. He wants to work at the disadvantage. He wants to take your weakness, your incapability, yeah, I can't put my words together, trembling in fear, and prove his presence through you so that many more will come to know just who he is. This is where I'm going to give you a jab. Beware. The only problem with all of this I'd say back, yeah, this is great. Man, God has chosen us, even in our weakness, to prove his presence and to see hearts and lives change. Great! <laughs> Sign up. But the only problem is that we, as the Western church, we are too dignified to be a fool for Christ, we are too wise to need the power of Christ. And we are too satisfied with so many other things to hunger for the presence of Christ. Or maybe said another way, God works from a disadvantage. But it's just that we most often don't want to play that role. We don't want to be, as it were, the donkey that Jesus rides in on. We're too dignified, we're too wise, and we're too full of most everything else. Let that sit for a moment. Just saying these things, I know it's going to provoke your inner Pharisee. It's going to provoke it. And pastorally, I want it to. Our inner Pharisees should not be safe here at church. You see, that inner Pharisee is is the result of really having lived by the flesh. You may be doing good things, but it's living by the flesh so that when you hear these kind of statements, oh, you're too dignified to be a fool for Christ, too wise to need the power of Christ, too satisfied to actually hunger for the presence of Christ, then you know, all of a sudden those, those remarks become very heavy upon us, burdensome even, crushing. And it will, it will crush the flesh. But if there is a flickering flame of the Holy Spirit in you. If you've tasted and you've seen that the Lord is good and something of the hint of that sweetness still is on the taste buds of your tongue, <laughs> then, then these statements, oh, we're too dignified to be a fool for God, We're too wise to need the power of Christ. We're too satisfied to hunger for Christ. that. If, if you have something of the flicker of the Holy Spirit, something of having tasted and seen that he's good, then this is an invitation into more and not a threat to your heart and life you catch it? It's an invitation into more. More of Jesus. More of Jesus. So I want to leave you with this question. Will you let God work at a disadvantage, even if that disadvantage Will you let God work at a disadvantage to the loss of your own dignity that you might be a fool for Christ, to the loss of your own wisdom in order to gain the power of Christ, or at the loss of your own comfort to pursue the presence of Christ? Will you let God work at a disadvantage? Let's pray together. Lord, we <laughs> oh, we feel our weakness within ourselves. <laughs> we feel the Barney Fife. We feel as though um, so often, man, we d- we don't have the wisdom. But then there are other times where we think we do. <laughs> the inner Pharisee rises up within us and thinks that I can, I can do this on my own, I can live this life on my own I can lean on my own understanding and it will be healing to my flesh and refreshment to my bones and then it is not then the trials and struggles of life come and I feel empty and I feel distraught and I feel confused so Lord Would you be so good as to let us embrace our weaknesses so that your grace might be revealed in our lives? Would you reveal even to us something of the difficulties of life so that we're running to nothing but you? And would you even in that place begin to foster in us a hunger for your presence. <laughs> Lord, I, I, I pray for us as a church that it might be felt and it might be even said, give me Jesus or I die. Give me Jesus, or what else do I have? Give me Jesus, or it's death. Give me Jesus, or it's emptiness. Give me Jesus, or it's darkness. Give me Jesus, or it's brokenness. I must have Jesus. How wonderful it is to hunger for you, Lord. We were made for it. Made for it. Made for the infinite one made for the Holy One, not made for these things in life that are all so small and so less than. We were made for you. So would you be our sole satisfaction? Be glad to work at the disadvantage that we oftentimes are to prove your presence, to see hearts and lives turn back to you. Wait on the Lord for a moment.
1: the service opened up this morning um, and the minute that I heard Tim playing the harmonica, it's like the first couple of notes, I heard the word topos, T-O-P-O-S, which in, in Greek means your place. And there I, I felt the Holy Spirit giving me an impression to to tell you this morning that the Lord Yahweh needs you to stand in your topos, to stand in your place, the place that He has given you, even though He sees your iniquity. He sees your sin. He sees where you are. But he still needs you to stand in your topos. Because there's no one else that he designed for what he needs you to do for the body of Christ. There's a certain anointing. There's a certain calling. There's a certain thing that only you fit that description. In his presence, you can literally shred your resume because he's looking at you in a completely different way and he's saying i have need of what you have to give to my body but your distractions are many and he's saying there's people here that are even making decisions out of their own flesh And they're leaning on their own understanding and they're not acknowledging him and asking him to direct your path. And he says to you this morning that if you move forward in that decision which is being developed in your flesh is going to be a fatal one for you and your family. So the spirit of the Lord says, as you stand in your toe post, in your place in which I called you, that there he will deliver you, <laughs> that there he will cleanse you, that there you will stand as the lamp stand and his light will shine within you. Because he was the one that carried your iniquities and your sorrows. And he sees it. But today he says, but I've made you fearfully and wonderfully. And I need you to stand in that. It's like a piece of a puzzle, <laughs> When you're putting a puzzle together, it is that unique piece that is missing that can only fit in that place. And you are that puzzle piece that he's waiting for you to stand in your place, in your topos, where you know he has said to you over and over and over and over So, the Spirit of the Lord says to you this morning do not walk in disobedience because it will cost you. But walk in me and stand in your place of topos. Cleanse me with hyssop. And I will be clean. Wash me. And I will be whiter than snow. Hmm. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your spirit, take your holy spirit, take your holy presence from me, but instead restore to me the joy of your salvation. (laughs) Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain it. I think in this Western world we have forgotten the tremendous, the tremendousness of who Yahweh is. (laughs) He's calling you to repent. to repent of your fleshly thoughts of saying, I got this. He'll meet me. He'll meet me with this decision. (laughs) There's some of you who even need to rescind your resignation. You resigned (laughs) from something that God put in your hands. you gave Yahweh your resignation letter. (laughs) And you need to come towards Yahweh and rescind that resignation and in place repent. And he's going to meet you there. (laughs) And he'll meet you there because of his loving kindness, of his tender mercy. Because he has need of you because there's nobody else who can play the harmonica like that. And there's nobody else who can do harmony like Shannon and have the soul of an artist like Susie. The leadership and worship like James. (laughs) Two words come uh, to me for Tommy. (laughs) The brilliance and tenacity. (laughs) A sensitivity like Dan. Why don't you stand with us? (laughs) You are that puzzle piece that is missing. And when you're not here in fellowship with the brethren, there's a piece of the puzzle missing. When you're not standing in your toe posts, where God told you to come, to be, to partake, you're a missing piece of that puzzle. When you're not using the giftings and callings that God has Made in you, originally made in you, you are not standing in your toe post. You know what it is. But you decided that in your own flesh you would walk in disobedience. And you would turn your face and yourself away from God. And God is saying to you this morning, turn your face towards me. Turn your eyes towards me. The time is short and I have need of thee. He's saying, what I've given you is uniquely yours. It doesn't belong to anybody else. And I don't accept your resignation. He says, I receive you. <laughs> he says, I receive you. I may rebuke you, but I receive you. I may resist your flesh, but I still receive you. Hmm. Pride, arrogance, lasciviousness, envy, conforming. Unbelief, doubt, fear, conforming to the things of the world, delighting (laughs) yourself (laughs) with the wickedness of the world. God says today that ends. Because the time is his and the time is now. And he says, Stand. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. And renew a right spirit within me, God, we ask this afternoon, Lord. We come before you as the corporate body and we ask God corporately to repent before your throne, the throne of righteousness, the throne that has healing in his hands. At the altar, we stand in the fellowship and say we repent of the sin of pride, the sin of arrogance, the sin of racism. The sin of unbelief, doubt, fear, contentment, conformity. And we stand as lampstands, God, so that you can turn the light in us, your light, so we can shine before men. And say, he that is within me is greater than he that is in the world. Your spirit, the Holy Spirit that is within you, will not allow you to fail. Listen closely to what the Spirit of the Lord is saying to you this afternoon. He is with you in sorrow. He is with you in grief. He is with you in joy. He is with you. He is with you. He is with you. He needs you. You are that missing piece. Stand in that topos today and move forth as the Lord says.
0: For, for the men in particular... Receive this word. Even as we came through the conference, we need to be exhorting one another daily, yes. encouraging one another daily, so we don't fall away. So I would encourage you if that particular word kind of resonated in your heart, don't go throughout this week without confessing or engaging another man, about it. We need to talk it out. We don't bring things into the light or even take advantage of identifying evidences of grace. It doesn't carry on its power. It has to be brought to one another. It has to be um, in conversation. Then finally, um, so men in particular, I think it's for all of us, but men in particular, talk it out with one another. But also for the younger generation here, Lele, I got eyes for you, man. <laughs> God has good things for you guys. You guys are puzzle pieces. You're not. You're 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 not in like, oh, the church puzzles here, and there's all these extra pieces to the side. The younger generation, Tori, you guys, you're your pieces that the Lord is, all right, fitting in to what he's doing here, right? So be sensitive to how the Lord might be leading. Just open heart before him, saying, Lord, all right, what what do you want of me? Um, The Lord's gonna be developing things in you guys. Maybe you've already had desires, but he's gonna start as he directs the heart of a king. He's gonna direct your heart into things that he wants of you so that you could be a piece of the puzzle, fitly placed. For ones even younger, even for uh, Eva, Ava, Trinity, I feel like i got to say your names. Tristan, you crew, I see you sitting back there, right? Maddie, Morgan's probably up, right? Um, you're, you're, you're pieces of the puzzle. You're not in a pile to the side. You're to be active. God has grace that this church needs, and he wants to work it through yes. you. And we love, oh, we love the ways in which that's already taking place. Watching kids at times. Matt, oh, man, I want to be careful of publicly saying stuff. But, Maddie, God's got grace on your, on your life. Um, he's brought the picture of you're, you're not just a nurturer, but you're going to be his voice to the next generation. He's going to to grant you certain insights to be spoken to these young kids. And you're to be like a Mary who treasures up these things in your heart. And at certain points, God's going to say it's time to speak it. And it'll be a word fitly spoken that for that child is going to grant them something of direction and encouragement in life. It's not just about the, the hands of carrying the children. It'll, he'll use your words, and those words are not to be like pearls spoken before the swine, cast out. They're not to be wasted. He's going to speak particular things to you. And you're supposed to treasure them. Let them marinate within you. Your love for kids, your love for the next generation, is going to be kind of the, uh, the incubator of those words. It's just going to be stirring up those words. It's a slow-cooking uh, crock-pot, if you will, right? Those words are going to be in there, and God's going to be warming them up, in, and it's to be spoken in the fit, rightly fit time that it might give life to those children. There's things. We could go around. Sorry if that's embarrassing. Uh, but like God has good things on each one of your lives, unique puzzle pieces to be fit into the whole for His glory. He wants to prove His presence through you and me. He wants to see hearts turned from the idolatry of the day to the true and living God, who can be hope for people in a dark world. So, Lord, we you got anything? All right, Lord, we bless you and we thank you. We we bless the word spoken. We bless. Uh, <laughs> even as I just didn't have a conclusion to my sermon. I was like, I don't know how this is going to go. And then, and then you're so good to just say, wait on me, wait on me, wait on me. Um, so, Lord, thank you how you utilize the body in unique ways to give direction to what you want to accomplish. We just bless you. You're so good to work in that particular way, not working through one, not working through two, but working through many to see your purposes realized in your church. So, Lord, I just pray, would your presence be proven among us let it be that we would be fools for your sake. Let it, be, let it be that we would not hold on to our own wisdom. And let it be um, that you would develop in us a great hunger for you. In Jesus' name, amen. What
2: a gift of- I want to read Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory,